Hi, this is Tony Mormino with Insight Partners, and welcome to the Engineers HVAC podcast, where we work to give back to the engineering community by sharing our HVAC application and design experience. So in this episode, I had tons of fun with my guest, Eric Norris from Aon, where we try to dispel five common myths regarding DX dehumidification equipment. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoy. Okay. All right. So we are going to get going. So now this starts the actual presentation. Okay. So the, the topic here is DX dehumidification Mythbusters event. And a myth is a widely held but false belief or idea. And, and as in like any other area of my life, we have myths in HVAC world as well, like any other business. And we hear things a lot that um, we wanted to clear up here today. And, and if you have any questions on that, just let us know. So Here's a couple of things we're going to touch on. So myth number one, percent RH is an accurate way to measure humidity. Myth number two, hot gas reheat removes humidity. Myth number three, hot gas bypass is similar to hot gas reheat. Myth number four, my digital scroll is short cycling. That's my favorite one, by the way. Myth number five, why are we using, why is 55 degree air leaving air temperature as standard and how did that kind of get started and, and why that might not be a great idea in all applications. Okay, so I'm gonna do myths number three and four and I'm gonna turn this over to Eric who's gonna handle the next couple of myths. So I'm gonna go ahead and share your screen, Eric. All right, and unshare Thanks, mine and you take it away, buddy. All right, so we're gonna talk first about percent relative humidity as an accurate way to measure humidity and well, is it really? So relative humidity is the percentage of moisture in the air versus how much air can that, or pardon me, how much water vapor can that air hold? And it is relative to temperature. So at a dry bulb temperature of 55, you've got a bucket that you can put the water vapor into and it's only a certain size. If you go to 75 degrees, it gets bigger. And then if we go to 95 degrees, it's even larger. So what does 50% relative humidity look like? Well, you're gonna fill each of these buckets half full and you can see that in each of these cases, the actual volume of water changes fairly dramatically based on your dry bulb temperature because the relative humidity is relative to that dry bulb temperature. If we look at this on a psychrometric chart, you can see we've got our line, vertical lines of constant dry bulb temperature, our horizontal lines of constant uh, dew point or constant humidity ratio. Those two are parallel lines. And then our percent relative humidity are those curves that follow along and they kind of mirror the saturation curve that you see at the top left. So relative humidity is there and we draw that in We've got our dry bulb across the bottom, and now we look at 55 degrees. And we look at 75 degrees, and we look at 95 degrees. And each of those points, point one, you can see there, point two and point three, but what do they mean to us? Well, let's look at the dew point. 
each of those points is on right on the 50% relative humidity line. But what we've got to do now is look at what is our dew point. So our dew point at 55 degrees and 50% relative humidity is about 35. We go to, looks like about 55 at 75 degrees and then about 74 at each of those. So we've changed that humidity ratio, that dew point, but they're all still at the same relative humidity. So what's the, really the correct answer? And the answer really is either one can be used is that which one is more reliable? So if we look at percent relative humidity versus dew point, and which is better to track humidity? And if we look at relative humidity, relative humidity is a value relative to the dry bulb temperature of that air. So it is a variable that is heavily dependent upon not only the amount of air in the, uh, or pardon me, the water vapor in the air, but also its temperature. And I saw a question come up that says, isn't dew point on the left? And absolutely, it's red to the left. Uh, for ease of putting it in there, we did show it on the right side of the screen. It can be read straight across, like I said before, that is a parallel line with the humidity ratio, which is the scale you saw on the right. Your dew point temperature, it increases in value as the moisture in the air increases, and it is independent of the temperature of the air. So it's now a, a variable that's independent of, it, of the air's dry bulb temperature. So which is better to track humidity? Well, if we look at these, all three of these have the same percent relative humidity, but they have a much different amount of water vapor in the air per pound of dry air. So it's much closer to use that method for your calculations than to use relative humidity. Now, that being said, if you're in a comfort cooling application, you're trying to get a good measure of the humidity in, in the air in a space, where you're gonna have a relatively small swing in dry bulb temperature, relative humidity is probably a fully acceptable way. And it's something that we as people understand more because we've been hearing it all our lives on the weather stations. Dew point, you hear it some, but it's just not quite as easy to comprehend. If you're looking at outside temperatures and outside humidity, I believe that dew point is gonna be a little more accurate way of measuring how much water vapor is really in the air. So with that, let's move to myth number two. And myth number two says that hot gas reheat removes humidity. Well, in order to really get there, we've got to understand what's going on. So we're going to look at a refrigeration cycle. And with our refrigeration cycle, we come, we've got our compressor. A hot vapor refrigerant comes out of the compressor into a condenser where it's condensed into a high pressure liquid. From there, it goes to a receiver tank. We hit an expansion valve. That's going to decrease the pressure of that. And then we go to the evaporator coil. 
that's where you get your cooling effect. It's going to evaporate that refrigerant back into a vapor so it can go right back into the compressor. So how does this work? Well, like I said, we start at the compressor, we go to the condenser, we go to the expansion valve, we go to the evaporator. The condenser is what has to get rid of all that energy that the compressor just added in so that we can have that liquid refrigerant going into the expansion valve. Coming out of the compressor, we're gonna have that hot gas vapor at about 140 degrees, give or take a little bit. But for this example, we're gonna go 140. With 100 degree saturated condensing temperature, that means the liquid refrigerant coming out of the condenser, its saturated temperature is 100 degrees. Now in reality, in this case, you'd want it to be somewhat below that, probably closer to 90 degrees, because you, you wanna make sure you've got full liquid going into the expansion valve. After the expansion valve, that saturated evaporator temperature is gonna be around 42 degrees. It's gonna be much cooler than that of the condenser. That way we've got refrigerant in there that's cold enough to get our cooling effect into the air that we need. And it's gonna leave the evaporator cool at approximately 42 degrees as, as well. Now, in reality, it's gonna be a little bit warmer that, than that to make sure we get vapor back into the compressor. We're at 375 PSI on our liquid side, 120 PSI on our suction. But now we're gonna add modulating hot gas reheat into this. Now that we understand the refrigeration cycle, let's look at what the hot gas reheat does and how it really works. So we've got our same system and nothing's really changed. We've got about a 45 degree leaving air temperature off of the evaporator coil. With that 140 degree coming off of the, compre off the compressor, and we added another valve and a whole bunch of controls. Now the controls are fairly simple. It's just a space temperature sensor, or pardon me, space relative humidity sensor or dew point sensor. So we know what we've got in the space and we can control that reheat coil then in order to maintain the desired condition within that space. So the refrigerant will come out of the compressor now and it hits our three-wave gas valve here. And either, it either goes to the condenser or up to the reheat coil. So we can see from this, the reheat coil is a portion of the condenser section of our refrigeration system. So we're gonna condense that hot refrigerant into a high pressure liquid in the reheat coil, just like we did the condenser coil. Now, by doing it with a modulating versus an on-off, we can avoid some temperature swings in the space. If all you have is on-off control, you get 100% of your heat of rejection in, from the compressor going into your airstream, and you'll actually overheat it beyond what you need. If you run a modulating control, you can modulate that valve to exactly what you need to get the desired leaving air temperature to control both the space temperature and the space humidity using the same unit and still meeting all of the energy codes. Because one thing about using reheat is energy code says that in almost every application, you can't use new energy for reheat in a dehumidification system. And you can see this is not new energy. This is the other side of the cycle required to dehumidify the air. And we're going to do all the dehumidification for this system in the evaporator coil. That is the cold coil. And to kind of see how it works, think about sitting out on your back deck tonight. You've got a nice glass of scotch on the rocks in your hand. 
And it will sweat on the outside of that glass because the liquid inside that is well below the dew point of the air, so it condenses. The same thing happens on your evaporator coil. The reheat coil will then reheat that air to 60 degrees, but it does not provide any dehumidification. And we're gonna look at this on a psychrometric chart. We've got our part load dehumidification. We've got a space that's at 70 degrees with a 50 degree dew point. So we're up here and that happens to be 70 degrees and 50% relative humidity as well, or very close to it. And some of you are thinking, well, why do I need dehumidification if I'm at 70 degrees and 50%? Well, this particular application was a lower temperature system where they needed a space at about 63, 64 degrees and a 50% relative humidity there. So you can see that if you drop down to that, you're down into that 45 degree dew point range, maybe just a little bit lower in the space. So we're gonna cool and dehumidify that air down to 45 in this case. Then, so that's all in the cooling coil. That's also your dehumidification. All of this happens in the evaporator coil. Now we go to the reheat coil and we're gonna reheat that air in the reheat coil. And that's your modulating hot gas reheat. And in this case, we're showing it heating to 62. We can heat to whatever temperature you need in order to maintain conditions within your space. Got just a little bit of additional heat there shown on the yellow bar and that is your fan. The supply fan adds heat into the system as well. And so now we've just cooled and dehumidified that air, but we've managed to dehumidify without overcooling the space and just making it really cold with 45 degree being sent into the space. We can provide neutral air that's dry enough to provide that dehumidification. And with that, we're gonna to go to myth number three and Tony's gonna take over on that. All right. Thank you, Eric. That was great. I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen here. So. That's a great lead into the next topic. Hot gas bypass is similar to hot gas reheat. We hear this all the time and understandably those two get confused because they sound exactly alike. They are completely 100% different though. <laughs> so if you're new to the industry, you'll see this uh, these acronyms HGBP, which is hot gas bypass, HGRH, which is hot gas reheat. And I think a lot of people understand the processes but they use these interchangeably just because they have the words hot gas in them and they use hot gas in the processes. But I'm gonna show you how they're different. So if you, to understand the reason we use hot gas bypass, you have to understand what happens to the refrigeration system at part load. So let's take this example of, there's a, this is a five ton system, single compressor, 1000 CFM, 50% outside air, with an on-off compressor, no hot gas bypass, no modulation whatsoever. We're just gonna show what happens at part load to the refrigeration system internally. So design day, it's 9578 outside, it mixes with the return, you get 8572 entering your coil. If you blow 1000 CFM across a five ton refrigeration system, you will get 54-ish degree air. Everything's working fine. And our saturated suction temperature, which is the temperature of the refrigerant leaving the coil, is 42.6. Now, the saturated suction temperature is the key to um, running the hot gas bypass. So we can't have this number too low, obviously, because if it's 28 degrees, then you may start freezing up this coil, right? And that's not a good thing. So 
This is full load example. Let's see what happens at part load. So we have our part load day, the clouds are moving in, it's cooler October day, and now your return air is 8067. Now we still have a full five tons of refrigeration and you're blowing 1,000 CFM across that evaporator and the resultant leaving air temperature is approximately 48. So you know we've dropped a few degrees as you would expect. And also our suction has dropped. Now the reason the suction's dropping is because we're not putting enough energy, as much energy into the system as we were on a full load design day. And as you can guess, when we further the part load situation, we get into a situation where the suction keeps dropping. So in this example, 77.5, 66.5 blowing across the evaporator, 47 degrees leaving. And as you would expect, the suction, saturated suction temperature is dropping down into the zone where we need to start making some decisions. So in the low, in the mid 30s, we need to start doing something different. Or if we keep going lower and lower, we're going to get a condition like this, which is not good. So if you keep going part load, keep running the compressor, this is a very extreme example. I have seen this happen before in the field, but this is something that obviously the safeties weren't working and uh, just went to the extreme. What happens here is all this freezes up, the cooling coal freezes up, you get no airflow. And in, in essence, the unit is 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 not useful. So, so the other option would be to turn off the compressor and as you might have guessed, doing that does not dehumidify the air very well. So if you have a scenario where you need to keep dehumidifying, turning the compressors not off is not an option. So before we had modulating compressors, what we would do is we would falsely load this system. Now, where can we get heat to falsely load this system? Well, we can get it from the same place we got the hot gas reheat from, which is right here. What we do is instead of pumping that into a coil, we pipe it into the evaporator coil after the expansion valve. So you're in, in essence adding heat to the system and falsely loading the evaporator at low load conditions. It's a very simple valve. It's a very simple process. It actually works off of pressure. I'm gonna blow this up here for a second. And what happens is the pressure at this suction of the compressor drives the valve position. So the lower the pressure here, the lower the pressure here, which opens a valve in here and allows more refrigerant to flow. And that's it. As the pressure builds up here, pressure builds up here, it closes the valve off, chokes down the hot gas re. It's a completely um, dumb device. It just works on pressure. It's not controllable. It is not a true capacity control, um, but it will keep your compressor running for, a, for some of the part load. So some of the Here's the reasons why we don't really do this anymore. Number one, it's an energy hog. So at part low, when you only need two tons, you're still using five tons of compression. It also saw, it also can have a lot of problems with oil return to getting oil trapped in this line, especially on split systems. And, um, and at some point, your unit will shut off, even if you have hot gas bypass. So it's the best we had for a long time. Um, we have much better solutions, which we're going to go over in the next in the next myth section. So here's a quick review of hot gas bypass on the left, the compressor, hot gas comes out, it goes up into the valve and is injected in the evaporator coil, hot gas bypass. Hot gas reheat, the hot gas comes out of the compressor and this time we put it into a reheat coil and run it, run the air over it to heat it back up and we run this refrigerant back into the standard refrigeration system. So that's the difference between hot gas bypass and hot gas reheat, pretty simple. So. We don't really use hot gas bypass much anymore, except for freeze pre prevention. Um, ASHRAE standard 
says Hotkiss Bypass shall not be used on constant volume systems. If you're going to use it on other systems, you have to have multiple steps of unloading or continuous capacity modulation, and it has to comply with this chart here. So under 20 tons, 20 tons and under, 15% of the uh, reheat, of 15% of the total capacity is the maximum allowable reheat, and over 20 tons, it's 10%. So in, in my experience, we only use this, uh, we typically, we only use this for extreme freeze protection, not something we would do to keep the, the unit on other than that. So, um, okay, so that's hot gas bypass versus hot gas reheat. And that leads us into our next section, one of my favorite myth topics. My digital scroll is short cycling, and I'm gonna show you, um, play you a video here in a second, but before I do that, I forgot to mention, so digital scroll is a type of scroll compressor. It's also known as a variable capacity compressor, a digital compressor, a VCC compressor. They're all the same names for the same product. I'm gonna play this sound clip here, which I'm hoping you can hear well, so that you can hear what we what we hear and, and people think is the compressor short cycling, so. Not getting any sound on that one, Tony. Able to hear that, Eric? No. And I know exactly, which is a good thing. All right, I'm gonna try that again. And let me know if you hear it. Here we go. Okay, hopefully you guys were able to hear that. Was that that come through okay, Eric? Yes, it did. All right, I'll play that again. And and there was a sound change there I wanted you guys to hear. When you're listening to it in person and you don't know what's going on, it gets confusing and it it seems like the compressor is short cycling. So that's the, the myth that we hear that we're gonna talk about here. So I'm gonna show you exactly what's going on inside the digital compressor. Before I do that, we're gonna talk about scroll compressors in general as to how they work. So scrolls are the most common compressor by far out there in the HVAC industry. And this is a typical scroll compressor. What you have on the bottom is your motor internally, your power connection here, your suction, Gas comes in here, goes through the compressor, gets compressed, and is forced or pumped out the top as a high pressure, high temperature gas. So that's how a standard on-off compressor works. Um, that's how a standard scroll compressor works. And here is a video showing what's going on. So if you were to take this cap off and look directly down into the compressor, this is, this is what you would see. So the suction is coming in here as a relatively cooler, lower pressure gas. And what happens is it moves through these ever-decreasing volumes. And as it does, it gets, as you would expect, compressed. So it shoots out the top here as a high-pressure, high-temperature gas. And that is how a typical conventional scroll compressor works. It just makes these little areas smaller. Pretty ingenious. The scroll compressor has been around for a while, and it's, it's, it's pretty bulletproof. It's a really nice compressor. So what is the difference between that and the digital compressor? Okay, so if you'll notice... This top plate is going up, then down, and then up, and then down, 
and so on and so forth. So what's happening here is a typical scroll doesn't do this. They're always, the plates are always engaged or meshed, I like to say. In a digital, we can raise and lower this depending on how much capacity we need. Now, one thing to note here is the compressor is always operating at the same speed. So variable capacity compressor, digital scroll, VCC compressor, the motor is always going at the same speed. We are just engaging and disengaging the scroll plates as needed for capacity control. And here's a little chart as to how that looks. So we do this in 15%, 15 second cycles. So for example, if you wanted 50% of your load, you would be pumping or engaged or compressing for seven and a half seconds, and you would be not pumping or not compressing or not engaged for seven and a half seconds. It's just that simple. If you need 80% load, you'd be compressing for 12 seconds and you would be disengaged for three seconds, so on and so forth. It's pretty simple. It works very good and it gives you very precise temperature and saturated suction control. Now, if we look at this from a percent full load capacity, which is on the X axis here and the full load power usage on the Y, this is a great comparison as to why we don't really use Hawkeye's bypass much anymore. So the digital compressor, you can see a full load is obviously using 100% of its power. At 50% load, you're only using 60% of the compressor power with the digital compressor. As opposed or contrast to the hot gas bypass, you're pretty much using just about all the power, no matter what the load is that you need. You know, that's all we had in the past, so we used it, but as you can see, it's quite a, quite a large energy hog. Um, the other advantage to the digital scroll compressor, which does something we didn't have before, which is extremely tight, temperature and humidity control with DX products. So that is super, super nice. And I'm gonna try and play this video again. And I've learned I need to change my speaker to do that. And here we go. I'm hoping you can hear it this time as well. How'd that come through, Eric? Came through great. Okay, good. That's what I like to hear. So let me change my speaker back over here. And I'll tell you what's going on inside there. There's a couple different noises going on. So some people who aren't familiar with these digital compressors, and, and understandably, they'll hear that, and they'll, they'll think that the compressor is just cycling on and off, which is not good for a compressor. So they'll call us and ask us that question, and we'll just explain them what's going on. No big deal. Um, so what you're hearing in in the compressor is you're first hearing a click, which is this solenoid valve. And what's going on is you have your suction line here, which is insulated, and you have your discharge line over here, which is a little hard to see. There's a discharge line of the compressor number two, so that's easier to see. So what happens is when we want to disengage the scroll plates, we open this solenoid valve, which creates a low pressure scenario in this pipe here and allows the top plate to float or to move up. And that's it. That's why you're hearing that click there. A lot of the digital compressors, the bigger ones have this internally now. This is a smaller one um, that has them on the external part. So, okay, so that's it for the digital compressor. But before we go to the next myth, there's another compressor that modulates. And I wanted to show you that as well, because this is a good, a good way to explain the difference between the variable speed compressor and the digital compressor. So the remember, the digital compressor doesn't change the motor speed the variable speed compressor, as its name implies, does change the motor speed. It's also known as a VFD compressor. It's the same thing. So here, these scroll plates operate like a typical scroll. 
They don't move up and down. They're always engaged. But to change the capacity, we change the motor speed using a VFD and some, some controllers. Okay, so, so every product has engineering trade-offs, pros and cons. The digital compressor has um, digital compressor versus the VFD compressor. So the pros of the VFD compressor is you get better part load efficiency and you get lower noise at part load. One of the problems of this, one of the cons of this compressor, not a problem, is that whenever you slow down the speed of a compressor, you lose velocity in the refrigerant lines, which loses the ability to fully bring back your oil at low load conditions. So if this compressor is operating at 20% for 20 minutes, and I don't know the exact values here, we would do what's called a purge cycle and ramp this up to 100% for X number of minutes to get the oil back. Is that a problem? Probably not on 90% of your jobs. If you're doing a job where it's real tight temperature and humidity control, like a surgery suite, you might want to just look at that um, and make sure that's accounted for in your design. Um, some of the other uh, cons to this is it is a higher cost, does have external devices like a VFD and electronic expansion valve um, and more sophisticated control. So engineering trade-offs to every one of them. I've used both of these with great success in my career, and they're both very, very uh, good compressors. So that was it for myth four. I'm going to turn this over to Eric, and he's going to jump on uh, myth five. So take it away, Eric. Great. So our final myth today is really more of a question of why 55 degree leaving air temperature off of our VAV systems. And the question is, why do most designers use 55 degrees for the VAV supplier temperature? Is it tradition? Is it for convenience? Is it science? Or my favorite is we as engineers, we tend to be a pretty conservative group and pretty risk averse and it's worked for the last hundred years. Why would I want to change something that's already working? So let's dig into that a little bit. So it's time to use an objective criteria to determine the best supplier temperature. We can look at system installed costs. That would include diffusers, ductwork, your air handlers, your coils, compressors, pumps, fans, the controls for the system, everything you need there. We need to look at indoor air quality. Comfort, we need to look at dilution of any contaminants that are there, either from people or equipment in the room or whatever the case may be. We need to look at indoor air quality on this. We need to look at thermal comfort as well. It's very important that the occupants of the space be comfortable in the space. Uh, there have been a lot of studies that show the more comfortable people are, the more productive they are. So you know, in the case of an office building, people get more work done if they're comfortable. If they're too hot or too cold, they tend to get less work done. We need to look at energy use. And that's a big deal. You know, we proved in, in Texas and Oklahoma in February that energy use is a big deal, even where we have abundant energy and it got so cold we were having rolling blackouts throughout the states when it got real cold. So energy use is a big thing that we need to look at. And what we learn here is 55 degrees is rarely the optimum supplier temperature. So we need to look at the optimization of a multi-variable multi problem. And this is a, a lot of variables in the problem. 
So what are we going to do? We're going to select a single parameter to minimize. In this case, we're going to minimize total power, knowing this, the, the load in the space, knowing the outside air load. We're going to try to minimize total power. All of the other parameters can be varied, the supplier temperature and volume, the fan differential pressure, the condenser fan power. And this particular example uses a, an evaporative cooled condenser, so we're going to have a condenser pump as well. Now, to get into the optimization, we're going to look at some rules of thumb, and they're pretty hard and fast rules in these cases. Number one, as total pressure increases, optimum supplier temperature is going to decrease. And I'm going to show you why here in a little bit. As the condensing power increases, the optimum supplier temperature increases. And then for any given system, there is only one supplier temperature that results in minimum power consumption. And at this point, I'm going to define efficiency the way I want it defined for today. Because there's a lot of different metrics that we can use for efficiency of the system. But in this case, because we're looking at an entire system, we're going to define our efficiency of the system as meeting the, the desired control objective for our space using the least possible power. By doing that, we've got the most efficient system we can get. So let's look at our system. This is a relatively large system. We've got uh, 1,430 MBH of sensible load in the room. We've got 200 MBH of latent load in the room. And we're going to have a supplier temperature of 55 degrees with 65,000 CFM. We've got 15,000 CFM of 91.1 dry bulb and 75.3 degree wet bulb air coming in. And one thing to notice is this the uh, supply fan total static pressure is 7.2 inches. And we need a brake horsepower of 123. Now, this particular example, I didn't write it. Uh, this is our, uh, this whole thing is really, this, this myth number five is all based on an article written by a gentleman named Dave Knable. And Tony has put a link to that article in the comments. So if you want to read that later, it's got a lot of information as to how we get there from here and a little more detail than I've got time to go into today. But the system was installed on a renovation building and the engineer did his best to size ductwork, and we all know how that can work from time to time. Everything sized the way he needed it, but then it didn't fit in the building. Always site conditions that make it to where they had to add more elbows, and the, the pressure went way up. And now the supply fans won't work. And they thought the manufacturer should provide new supply fan motors for the building or for the air handler. But maybe that's not the best answer. Through calculation and optimization, we still have the same 15,000 CFM of, of outside air at the same outside air condition. We've got a room load of 1,430 MBH sensible and 200 MBH latent. Nothing has changed. What has changed is our supplier airflow and temperature. You recall before we were at 65,000 CFM at 55 degrees, well, if we, if we drop that supply air to 45.8 degrees, we need 44,850. 
using the fan laws and the same duct system, our total static pressure goes from 7.2 to 3.4, and we go from a little over 100 brake horsepower to 40. And our total power drops to 211.7 kW. We're, we've got the same dry bulb temperature, but one thing I want to note is the room relative humidity. So let's look at our optimum supply air temperature. And we start off with our 55 degrees because clearly that is going to be our baseline. That's what everybody de designs to, or well, nearly everybody. Our, our fan power in this case is 98.85 kW and basically 160 kW of condensing power, unit power. 258.8 total kW used and our room relative humidity is 50.7% at full load. When we drop to our optimum supplier temperature, that 45.8 degree supplier temperature that was calculated for this particular space, our fan static pressure, like I said before, dropped from 7.2 to 3.4, which dropped our fan power from 98.9 kW to 32.2 kW. But at the same time, our condensing unit power went up some. Now, remember I defined uh, our efficiency as meeting the control objective with the least possible power. In this case, we were able to exceed the control objective using less power by providing a lower leaving air temperature. And the reason I can say we exceeded it is because instead of 50.7% room relative humidity, we're at 38.6 room relative humidity. We're able to dry that room out much more than we were able to before. And that's going to have some added benefit with microbial growth, bacterial growth, anything like that in the space. Drier air tends to work better. If you look at ASHRAE and the recommendations, especially with some infectious disease that has become pretty popular over the last year and a half. ASHRAE says to maintain between 30 and 60% relative humidity within the space. Clearly, both of these conditions meet that minimum or that range, but drier air tends to work a little better for a lot of things. And we're not sufficiently dry that it's going to cause discomfort for the occupants. So if we look at the HVAC system power, we graph it, and this is for the last build or this the same building that we looked at. And down at the bottom, we've got the fan power, and that's in KW. And you can see if we start with the coldest leaving air temperature and go warmer, as you get warmer and you're leaving air temperature, your fan power goes up. And that makes complete sense if you think about it, because if you're just looking at the sensible condition on it. As you're leaving air temperature from the unit increases, you have to move more air. So it's going to follow that squared relationship of the air flows. So the differential airflow squared is going to get your fan power differential. The refrigeration power as you're leaving air temperature increases goes down. And the reason the refrigeration power goes down as you're leaving air temperature increase or increases is you've got less lift, meaning you've got a 
lower differential between your suction and your discharge pressure, so the compressor has to do less work. And therefore, your condenser has to do a little less work as well. But as we increase, as we look at the total power, it adds the, the fan power and the refrigeration power together. And as you can see, there is a minimum. And every system has a minimum total power based on a supplier temperature. And what that minimum power is, is dependent upon your system and its external static pressure. The higher the static pressure, the less benefit you're going to get from that because your fan power will be lower, but your refrigeration power will remain roughly the same. So you can get a little bit you, with a lower uh, total static pressure on the system, your optimal airflow will give you a better or a higher leaving air temperature. If you'd like to download the article, there's a link there for that, and you can scan it with your phone, and, and we'll get, the, get you there. And like I said, there's also links in the comments that you can click on. So what about, what is, what about using the optimal supplier temperature? What are the operational problems with a lower leaving air temperature? And the answer is none. There are no operational problems. There's an ASHRAE publication on cold air design guide, and it addresses the design operational issues associated with a colder supplier temperature. It addresses what you need to do in the way of diffuser throws and mixing from diffusers, that kind of thing, in order to appropriately design the system to work with that lower leaving air temperature. Now, there are many buildings in operation with this system. Some are pretty big, like the Mall of America there in Minneapolis-St. Paul area that's just over 13,000 tons. That system, when the designer uh, designed that building, they were looking at energy use and they used the optimal leaving air temperature and calculated how to get to that minimum energy use, the minimum power input to meet the control objective. But it's not limited to a big space like a mall. It can be used in offices, schools, retail establishments. Any building you're designing, especially if it's a VAV building, can certainly provide this method and provide better control at a little bit lower leaving air temperature. So we've busted the myths. And with this, I'm going to turn it back over to Tony and let him finish up. Great. Thanks, Eric. That was a, a great, I love, I think we found our next topic too, because we got tons of comments on the 55 degrees. It's amazing to me as an engineer, when we look at something in a different light, how much energy we can save uh, by achieving the same goals. It's just, it really is unbelievable. So thank you for that. It looks like a good primer for another, another uh, episode of this. So, so yeah, so hopefully we've, we've busted some myths here. Before you, we're going to start some question and answer because we got tons of questions. Thank you all so much. But before you go, if you liked what you saw, please like this video, whether you're on YouTube or LinkedIn, we'd greatly, greatly appreciate it. And again, we just want to say um, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get to the questions here in just a second. And really, we do want to say thank you. You, you all have been an amazing support for us with doing this stuff online. We're hoping we're bringing you quality content that's useful for you. Email me if you have any suggestions. Um, on how to improve it, new topics, et cetera. We're always open.
for that. So again, just a quick reminder, next Thursday, and we'll do the Q&A here in just a second, five tips for testifying makeup air units. It's going to be 20 minutes. We're going to give you a quick rundown on our take on that. Um, you could stick around for questions and answers. You can sign up here by zapping this QR code, or I have put the link in the comments. So we hope to see you there. PDH credits, just a reminder, email me or your account executive at Insight, and we will get this to you. Not a problem. Um, if you want to put your email in the chat, that's fine. I, I, I would recommend you just email it to me so everybody doesn't see it, but you can certainly do that as well if you want. And one more ask, if you want to follow us, if you like this kind of stuff, follow us on YouTube and LinkedIn. I'll leave this up here for just a second. You could zap these. This goes to our LinkedIn business page, Insight Partners, and this goes to our YouTube channel, Insight Partners HVAC TV, and everything we do online, we broadcast on there to give you reminders and stuff like that. Okay, so I think um, that's it for the PDH portion. We're going to do some Q&A. Uh, we've got some questions here, and you all are welcome to stick around. Uh, if not, thank you for joining us. And if you have questions, please, please put them in the chat and we'll get to them. So I'm just going to go down the list here. I think, Eric, you've answered a few of them during your time. Uh, let's see here. We got a lot of coming in loud and clears. Uh, awesome. Sounds good. Okay. Um, we talked about the dew point on the left. Some charts, it's actually on the left on the AON chart or on our Insight Partners chart, it's on the right. So it really doesn't really matter. It's a horizontal. Um, line. So it's uh, it's good to point that out, Andy, though. Thank you for your, your comment there, because all, all of them are a little bit different. Um, okay. Is the relative humidity percent the same in all three of the vessels? Bill asked that, and I think somebody did answer that. Yes, they were all 50% RH. Um, it's a great visual way to show that RH is uh, dependent on dry bulb. Um, let's see here. Re can be used. Okay. Do, 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 do. You jump in here anytime you see something you want to talk about. Um, uh, Bill said uh, something about short cycling due to low charging or control. Yeah. So you can get low suctions when the charge is low. That's actually a classic uh, case of low suction is when your refrigerant charge is low. And a purge run for OR uses. I'm not sure, Bill, if you're referring to um, purging the air. Uh, we When we were talking about purges, we were talking about purging the, um, bringing the VFD compressor up to full speed to purge the oil in the refrigeration pipes back to the system. It's pretty common to do that in any type of variable compressor um, operation. So, uh, Harold, this might be a good question for Mr. Eric here. Um, Harold asked, I heard you say the velocity. Um, he's asking about how to calculate the velocity in the refrigerant lines and split systems and how to do, I guess, how to size the piping. So I know how that's done. Eric, why don't you talk a little bit about how we handle that in the field? So the way that's handled in the field is you, you look at the full load and how much velocity there is in each of the three lines. You've got your discharge, your liquid, and your suction. You know, in a traditional split system, the only two you're really going to be looking at in the field are the liquid and suction. The discharge is contained within the condensing unit fully. Now, that being said, there are times where you will have a discharge line. You calculate the velocity based on the total tonnage of the unit and the pipe size. And it gets pretty complicated. We don't have near enough time to really dig into that today. And 
Tony, that might be a good discussion for another day for you is how to do sizing for refrigerant pipes, uh, pipes. But the one you're most concerned about in most applications, if you've got a suction line that's going up, meaning that you've got your condensing unit above the air handler, the oil is not fully miscible, meaning it won't fully absorb into a vapor refrigerant. So you have to have that vapor moving at a high enough velocity to pull that oil up the pipe. Yeah, and we've got tools available through Aon that can assist with that as well. Get with your account executive; they'll be happy to help you with that. Yeah, that might be a great topic. Actually, it was on my list: refrigerant piping and designing and and installing, especially for our contractors who have to install the stuff. But yeah, so if you you have an Aon split, we we rep Aon, but it's probably true for any manufacturer. Get with whoever you purchased it from, and. You know, we're more than happy to size. We want the opportunity to help size the refrigerant lines because that is a major, major cause of issues. And once you have issues on splits, it's hard to really get back to um, baseline on those. So please reach out to your Insight Partners rep. Um, Bill asked a question that I'm not sure I know the answer to. Are all digital scrolls 15-second loading pulse time? I, I know the ones we use are, but is that true in the industry? Do you know, Eric? All of them I am aware of are on a 15-second cycle. Gotcha. Yeah, that thing, I think that's that's what I'm familiar with too. So, okay, another question from Harold. I think we answered that in the refrigerant piping. So get with your rep. Um, if you have a V3 Aon unit and we will size that for you. Um, Carol, at less airflow and lower supplier temperature, um, you need to select the right diffusers and be careful that your minimum OA pressure. Yep, very good question. And um, Eric, you want to talk, you knew you talked a little bit about that and you want to talk a little bit more about that or? I can address it briefly, especially the minimum outside air. Uh, if you notice the the example I use, we did not change the outside air volume. We changed the total supply air volume. In order to meet code on pretty much any VAV system, you need to be measuring your outside air volume and controlling your outside air damper to maintain that outside air, even at part load when you are at a lower airflow. So you're going to be at a higher percentage of outside air in those applications. I know it's not always done, and some applications it works okay to not do that, but most applications you really do need to measure and actively control your ventilation air. I agree with that completely. And as far as the mm -hmm. diffusers, you just got to look at what's the throw and how is it going to mix based on that leaving air temperature, and most diffuser manufacturers have guidelines for that in their literature. Yes, thank you, Eric, and, and thanks, Carol, for the comment. Very good um, comment. Very, very applicable and something to look out for in low temp, you know, supplier temp situations. And Larry says uh, he was referring to your 55 degree myth busting. Uh, I've been beating this horse for years to no avail with my cohorts in the industry. Finally, this has been a great seminar. And of course, I will read any comments that calls it a great seminar. So if you want me to read it, put that in there. All right. Carol says, thanks. Um, she actually says, thanks. You addressed my comment. That was during your um, presentation. Let's see here. Um, uh, Reen, Rain, I think that's your name. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, on a DOAS, uh, Aon package unit application, how does the unit measure and calculate dew point in order to control supply air temperature to a constant dew point design? And I will let Eric answer that one. I can do that. So the, the DOAS unit, your makeup air unit, we're going to measure the temperature and the dew point of the outside air, and that's going to determine the mode of operation for the unit. Are we going to ventilate? Are we going to cool it? Are we going to dehumidify it? Or are we going to heat it? From there, the way Aon controls the coil or the, the dew point 
is it takes a little bit of work up front during commissioning, but we control to a constant suction temperature or suction pressure, which are equivalent in this case. On the So you've got a constant evaporator temperature, and if you start looking at approaches, it will be a relatively constant leaving air dew point. At higher loads, your approaches will be a little bit further further off. So you might have a 10-degree approach at full load and a 6-degree approach at part load. But it's going to be in the in the ballpark at least. And then we, prov- we control the reheat valve in order to maintain the appropriate leaving air temperature to control the space dry bulb temperature. Excellent. Thank you, Eric. Another question from Andy. And thank you, Andy, for the questions. Um, what is the coil temp at this lower leaving air temperature? And I think he was referring to your 48 degrees. And I think it's a 7 to 12 degree approach, coil temp to air temp. Is that about right, Eric? Would you say that? Somewhere, somewhere in that ballpark, yes. And so we have to run the unit with at the airflow and everything to determine exactly what the suction was. Got it. Thank you. And thank you, Andy, for your uh, questions. And Darren uh, Draper asked, uh, he was referring to your when you were talking about your 55 degrees, uh, this assumes a mixed air system rather than a decoupled ventilation from space, heating, and cooling. What about a DOAS system for cold air design? I'm, I'm, I'm Typically, when I select a DOAS system, I'm selecting it on the dew point um, and many other factors. But uh, if you want to address that, Eric, your two cents on that. I can put in my two cents uh, in order to dig into it. That, again, would have to be an, a discussion for another day. And there's a lot to look at when you're trying to determine what's the appropriate leaving air temperature for a DOAS unit. If you've got colder air, you need less cooling from your terminal unit, whatever type of unit that may be. If you've got warmer air, you're not going to dump that, have an issue of dumping cold air, especially if you're providing the 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 makeup air directly into the space, not through your terminal units. You're going to have more capacity required from your terminal units, but may have slightly better control over the space at some conditions. So there's a lot of trade-offs that really have to be looked at as to exactly what leaving air temperature is appropriate for a DOAS unit versus a comfort cooling unit where you are mixing that outside air with return. So that is the engineering playbook answer number one. It depends. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great question and and certainly should be looked at, you know, and maybe we could address that a little further in our our little Zoom meeting next week. So uh, I know this guy, Dave Recca. Thank you, Tony and Eric, for an outstanding presentation. Well, you're welcome. Thank okay. you, Dave. Um, Thank you, Dave. Thanks for watching. Let me see. Great presentation. Um, let me see. <laughs> Steve Clankson, who's one of our own. Tony, are you considered to be an HVAC influencer? I don't think so, Steve, but thank you for the for the chuckle there. I appreciate you. As always, Steve's a lot of fun to have on these things, that's for sure. Um, let's see. Piping guideline. Um, yep. So Matt says all manufacturers have DX pipe sizing guides for their equipment. Best practice is to use the right guide, particular piece of equipment. Yes, yes, yes. Agreed completely. Um, yeah. So my other two cents on that is whoever you buy it from, please, you know, if you're not, especially if you've never done one before, like if you bought your first Aon split system, get your rep involved, you know, don't call them two days before startup and you've already piped it up. You know, that's usually doesn't. <laughs> Unless you're very familiar with the systems, you know, and it's sometimes you have the pipe stub out on the condensing unit, but that's not the pipe size you need to run. So it will depend on 
numerous factors. So please get with your rep. Um, we're more than happy um, to help. Oil return and velocities are always a concern. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I did post the link to the 55 degree supplier temperature. Uh, Renee, um, thank you for your comment. If you haven't seen that, let me know. Um, do you ever have the... Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll address that for Carol. Yeah, for the question is, do, do you ever vary the depth to add rows of the evaporator coil to accomplish more dehumidification? And the answer is yes. Uh, you can per, you can use a standard coil. You can use a six-row evaporator coil. It depends on where you are in the country, where you are in a box size, what compressors you've got. There's a lot of things that go into the decision as to whether or not to go to a deeper coil. Either of those options is certainly viable. And I would say, yeah. you know, if you're looking at it during the design portion, look at all the options and figure out which option is best for your facility. If you're looking at it after it's installed, it pretty much is what it is, and you're changing controls at that point. Absolutely. And I think I think Carol's given me a good um, and my five tips next week. One of the tips is, you know, a deeper coil always isn't the best way to get more deep in case. Sometimes upsizing the unit you know, to the next compressor size is not only less expensive, but a better selection overall. So a number of variables to look at, but great question. Yes, we do. Um, she says, I live in Florida and I, I'm from Florida and I, I know the pains of the humidity. And uh, when you walk outside and your glasses fog up on that August morning and it's, it's only nine o'clock, I totally get it. I've been there. So I think that's it for the questions. Um, Eric, if you don't mind staying on uh, for a minute and I want to say thank you again to everybody. Um, this has been amazing. Great turnout. We really enjoyed it. We'll we'll shoot you out, you know, an email and uh, put some stuff on LinkedIn and YouTube for our next one. Any suggested topics, email me and email me for any other questions or your PDH or anything like that. So I'm going to end the stream here and Eric and I will stand for a minute. But thank you all so much. Yeah. So as we end this podcast, I just want to give a huge shout out to the people that take the time to leave reviews of this podcast on Apple, Spotify and all the other platforms. It just means the world to me that you take that extra 13 to 95 seconds to show your appreciation and also give context to the people of why this is a worthwhile podcast. So I appreciate that so much and hope to catch you on the next one. Thank you very much for listening.